There we go. All right. Are you ready for week 10? Yes. Y'all are going to have to help me today. Amen. All right. Messy. Being a Jesus community is messy. When we truly follow the way of Jesus, it's messy, but worth it, but so worth it. And we've watched as Jesus has preached this really meaningful sermon, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, we've been seeing this messy way, and together we've been saying we want to follow that messy way. Amen? Even though it's messy, we want to be on the way of Jesus. And so I'm going to review the last nine weeks. So I'm going to go a little bit slower through our review. I'm not going to auctioneer style this week because this is my last time to take you through it. Okay, so let's talk about where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We started week one in Matthew chapter five, and we introduced what we know often as the Beatitudes, and we recognized that what Jesus was doing was he was very quickly turning their understanding of God's kingdom upside down on its head. He was introducing kingdom theology and the way of God's upside down kingdom. Everything that they thought of society that they thought might be the way of Jesus. Jesus says, you thought this, but actually, let me flip it on its head, and this is actually what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. Then week two, we stayed on the exact same verses, and we talked about the best way forward would forward would be for us to stop worrying about who is blessed and simply choose to be a blessing. We also talked about how the kingdom of God, all the goodness of God's kingdom, is here now through the people of God, that's us, faithfully following the way of Jesus. And what a beautiful thing. We are representations of the good things of heaven right here, right now. Then week three, we looked at the verses that talk about salt and light, and we talked about how Jesus called ordinary people. If you're an ordinary person, wave your hands in the air like you just don't care. Woo-woo! Somebody get that on camera. <laughs> Jesus called ordinary people to live ordinary lives, transformed and empowered by an extraordinary God, and that's what we have said yes to. Then week four, we talked about how anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, despite how sometimes the church really tries to demonstrate that anger is indeed a fruit of the Spirit. It's not, right? <laughs> anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, and that the way we speak about people matters. We also talked about how this call to love our enemies is a heart shift that informs our actions. And so if you remember that week was all about if we truly love our enemies, it's not just something we say. It is literally something that we do. We begin to make choices that benefit our enemies. And that is hard stuff. Amen? Then week five, we talked about the law and about guardrails. And we talked about how the law, the rules that we follow are like guardrails. And guardrails are good because if you're a bad driver, they keep you from driving off the cliff, right? But Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount is trying to pull us deeper into heart transformation, 
where guardrails are no longer essential because we drive like Mario Andretti or Jeff Gordon now. We don't need guardrails. Amen? So guardrails are good, but heart transformation is better. And so we ask the question, am I simply avoiding a wreck or am I truly pursuing King Jesus? Am I simply avoiding wrecking my life or am I pursuing King Jesus with all that I am and no longer need those guardrails? Then week six, we jumped into Matthew chapter six and we talked about how our heart motive matters. That in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking everything to a heart level and he keeps teaching us about heart transformation. And so as we're doing good things, as we're doing kingdom works, we ask ourselves three things to make sure our heart motive is in line with God's kingdom. Number one, who gets the glory? Is it me or God? Number two, is there a desire in my heart to manipulate a situation to get what I want? Number three, who am I trying to impress, them or him? So heart motive matters. Then week seven, we worked our way through the Lord's Prayer, and we recognized that the way that Jesus taught us to pray shapes us. It doesn't just shape the way we pray. It literally does a part in shaping us as people who follow Jesus. In the way of Jesus, it really is a together way. Remember the Lord's Prayer used uses we and us and our and not I and mine and me. And so even in the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, we're reminded that we belong to one another, we need one another, and that it is through God's church that he intends to shape and form us into the way of Jesus. Through the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded to remain invested in his will. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're reminded that we must stay in a posture of daily dependence on God and that we truly need God's guidance for every moment of life. That phrase, lead me because I cannot lead myself. Can I get an amen? And then week eight, we continued on in Matthew chapter six. We talked about heart posture some more. And we asked this question, from what heart posture do I view the world? Kingdom abundance or the myth of scarcity? Am I living closed-fisted because I'm worried that there won't be enough? Or am I living open-handed with the ability to love because I live in the abundance of God? So from which heart posture do I view the world, kingdom abundance or the myth of scarcity? We talked about how according to Jesus, my heart determines what I see. And so the shape of my heart determines how I see the world. And with a transformed heart, we hope to see the world the way that Jesus does. Amen? And then last week, Matthew chapter 7. We started into Matthew chapter 7, and we looked at two different ways that you can interpret, based on the original language, the word judge. We talked about one option being to discern apples are not oranges, 
or to judge apples are superior to oranges, right? That those are the differences in the way that word is used, and it's a really important distinction when we follow the way of Jesus. We talked about how our use of discernment, which we must use, does not give us a license to condemn. And so as we are on our journey discerning right from wrong, on our own way following Jesus, at no point do we want to teeter into the side of condemnation where we dehumanize and harm others? We also uh, all got to sigh uh, a big sigh of relief because as we looked at scripture that talks about judgment, we recognize that those who don't claim to be Jesus' followers are not our responsibility to judge. Those who do not choose the way of Jesus we don't have to judge them. King Jesus does that. And so we just get freed to love and invite them on the journey with us. And that is such a relief. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we also talked about self-awareness and how being self-aware kills self-righteousness. But self-righteousness blinds us to humble self-awareness. And so we recognize that we want to stay in a posture of self-awareness, recognizing our own need for the grace of God and therefore offering that same posture of grace towards other people. We ended by talking about how the greatest gift we can give society is to give our whole heart and lives to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That if we truly want to see our world changed for the good of God's kingdom, then the best place for us to start is right here. Amen? On our very own hearts. And we talked about the golden rule and about how the golden rule is a gift to us because Jesus was like, as you're trying to figure out what I would do, let's use you as a gauge. What would you want, right? And so we talked about on our way to what would Jesus do, let's aim for what would I want. And that Jesus in his grace gave us this really awesome guide to help us so that I don't know. I can't claim to be an expert on the way of Jesus. I'm learning every day, amen? And aiming to get better every day. And so in God's grace, I receive that guidance to treat others the way that I would want to be treated as I aim to follow the way of Jesus. So as we wrap up this series today, I want us to look back on where we've been and recognize the way in which Jesus is taking everything and turning it up on its head and really showing us what it looks like to follow him. And remember that in that culture, Jesus was aiming to reshape a people to better represent his father. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they thought they were doing it with their rule following and Jesus said, I know you think you're there, but actually I need to take everything you know and flip it on its head for you to truly represent my Father's heart well. And aren't we in the same place, church? A people who just want to follow God's heart. And so again, we receive 
the direction of our Lord as he shows us the way of his kingdom. So if you're ready for the final installment of the Sermon on the Mount, say, I'm ready. They are ready, Lord. I'm ready too. If you would stand in honor of God's word today, we are going to finish out the Sermon on the Mount by reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Hmm. Hear the word of our Lord, church. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces bad, good fruit. Wow, a good tree produces good fruit. Let's make sure we get that right. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. The word of our Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus has a strong finish here. I want to show a doodle right off the bat because I think this will frame our entire conversation. It's got some kind of big words on it. This is a great summary of where we're headed today. If you look in the blue, we've got the word orthodoxy. Everybody say that. Orthodoxy. This is right belief. And then on the right, in the yellow, we've got orthopraxy. Let's say that one. 
orthopraxy. This means right behavior. And you'll notice in the middle we've got the green where doodle Jesus lives. And I think Jesus' whole point today is let's get you there in the middle where you both believe what God said, but you also do what God said. And I, I love the little formulas at the bottom, because we all know this, right? We recognize it. Orthodoxy minus orthopraxy equals hypocrisy, right? So when you say you believe the right things, but you don't do what you believe, we call those people But when you do what you say you believe, that is Christianity, the way of Jesus. And so all of our journey as people of faith is trying to understand what we believe and put it into practice so that we might follow the way of King Jesus. So this week, what we're really looking at is Jesus is giving them a triple conclusion. He's got like three epic sermon analogies to wrap up and bring home his massive sermon that he just preached. Jesus has described to us the way of his kingdom, and now we have a choice. Church, this is where we are, just like they were. We have heard the way of Jesus, the way of God's kingdom, and now we sit in this space where we have a choice. And Jesus gives three images in his closing to illustrate this point. And I think his point is this, Nike swoosh, just do it. Yes. It's like Jesus is saying, none of this is unattainable, church. Why would he tell us if he didn't want to empower us to do it? Amen? He's not mean. He's not going to tell us his way and then make it impossible for us to follow that way. So it's like Jesus is like, now you know. Now go and do through the power of the Spirit. Now go and be this Jesus community that I've called you to be. And so we approach these closing verses from this perspective. Now we have the chance to decide. Do we choose to truly follow the way of King Jesus or no? That's where we're at together. And so if we dive back into the text, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 to you again. Jesus says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Doesn't that just brighten your day? <laughs> right? So in your notes, I wrote this. The way of Jesus isn't popular, but it's also not meant to be lonely. I want us to get that deep into our hearts. Jesus is clear. Not everybody finds his way. So the way of Jesus isn't probably the popular way. But it's also never meant to be lonely. It's still a pathway with people on it and we journey together. 
And so while we recognize it's not the popular way, we receive God's gift that we get to go on that way together. I want you to think about your last Amazon purchase with me. For how many of you was it this morning? You don't have to confess that. It's okay. Don't worry. Think about what you do when it's time to make an Amazon purchase. Maybe this is just what I do. I'll throw myself under the bus. First, I check the reviews, right? I see how many stars it has. I want proof that this product is effective, amen? I want to know that this vacuum is going to suck cat hair out of carpet like nobody's business. You know what I'm saying? And so I check the reviews. When I am on Amazon, I want the popular choice, amen? I want the tried and true method that's going to get the job done. Are you with me? You know, this is the way we're kind of wired. We like popular because it tells our consumer culture psyche that it works, right? If it's popular, it must work. Okay, so church, we have to recognize this is a real good strategy with vacuums. Not a great strategy with Jesus. Great vacuums, not the way of Jesus, okay? The popular five-star route is not always going to lead us to the narrow path. And so we have to be mindful of our consumer culture mentality that can often be unintentionally applied to the way of Jesus. So this is why some of these non-popular teachings of Jesus that we've gone through might feel offensive or confusing because they are so different than the kingdom of the world, which and so yet again, let's go back to the beginning. Here is Jesus, kingdom of the world, kingdom of God, amen? And so if we think in the way of Amazon products, Jesus is a terrible marketer. He is like, there's not going to be a lot of people on this path, and it's not going to be fun. It's probably going to be hard, but want to come? Right? That's basically Jesus marketing the way of Jesus. He's brutally and beautifully honest with us. And putting all humor aside, church, we cannot ignore the fact that Jesus said few will follow this path. Few will follow. Few will find it. And that is a sobering reminder. And that's why the church is such a gift. Because together, we navigate it together. We don't have to do it alone. We don't have to try to figure it out alone. With the help of the Spirit, together, we navigate the narrow way of King Jesus. So as the world defines it, Jesus is really focused on faithfulness before effectiveness. 
If Jesus was concerned about faith or effectiveness, he would have marketed a lot better. Right? He would have been like, I know it looks narrow, but it's not that narrow. It's actually pretty easy to follow. Come on. Just come Just come on. But instead, he's like, no, dude. It's narrow. It's going to be hard. But I'm going to be with you. Are you in? So Jesus is deeply focused on faithfulness, faithfulness to the way of his Father before he is ever concerned with effectiveness, and that is unpopular. Think about, I know we got some Walmart people up in here. How would your boss feel if you're like, I know this isn't popular and it's not really effective, but I think it's good. They'd be like, try again, sir, right? So at, at times, church, in our attempt to make Jesus appealing, we're tempted to abandon this narrow path. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we following leaders or ideas merely because they are popular? Or are we discerning their conformity to Jesus and his way? You know, I'm going to just confess and lay all my cards out there on the table. I cut my teeth as a pastor at the tail end of the movement of, like, seeker-sensitive church. Have you heard this phrase? Like, that you construct your entire church around people who don't like church or don't know church. You know what I'm saying? I don't mean that as an insult. And the more that I'm journeying with Jesus, I'm like, we're just lying. Rather than just saying, this is actually what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. Come on, but this is what it looks like. And so I just just feel like that's what I want to be, right? I want to be faithful to the way of Jesus and open with this is what it looks like. It's messy and it's hard, but we're going to figure it out together. Amen? And so the way of Jesus may not be popular, church, but it's absolutely not lonely. Jesus' words here is not a call to isolation or, or to spiritual privacy. The narrow path is not meant to be the lonely path. The call of Jesus is always into community. And so as we, we read these verses that talk about this narrow way that few find, I want to remind us that it's still not a journey that we're ever alone on. Jesus called his disciples together. Think about that. If you watch the way that Jesus called the 12 into community with him, they called, he called them together, right? It wasn't an isolated thing that they went on. They were together as a people. He even sent them out in pairs to do ministry. They were never alone. And so we too are invited into that together way. And with that, I, I just wanted to read one verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. So to the church in Thessalonica, Paul reminded them of this together way. And he said, so encourage each other and build each other up 
just as you are already doing. And so as we aim to follow this narrow way of Jesus, that's what we do. We encourage one another. We build one another up. And we go on this way together, recognizing that it may not be the popular way, but it is not the lonely way. We love, we serve, we encourage one another. And we have this beautiful promise as we do it. It is when we walk this narrow road together, Jesus taught us that that is when he is in our midst. When two or three are gathered in my name, so I am there among them. And so as we journey on the narrow way together, Jesus promises to be with us. So let's talk about why we choose this narrow way. It's not because it's easy. It's not because it's the popular way. It's not because we just want to be different. It's even not just to avoid destruction and eternal separation from God, although that is a wonderful benefit. Listen, church, this is what it has to be in our hearts. We take the narrow road because on it we encounter the presence of Jesus. Oh, if all we are in it for is avoiding hell and gaining heaven, we have missed the bliss of following King Jesus. We take the narrow road because on it we encounter the presence of Jesus. Amen, church? This Jesus thing is meant to be good for us right now. And it's because the gift we receive is the presence of King Jesus. And the gift of his church, we're never alone on the journey. Let's continue on. I want to read verses 15 through 20 to you again. Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Listen to verse 20. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Now, let's talk about judgment. We are discerning today, not condemning. Amen, church? We are discerning some fruit bearing. And I need you to discern in me and likewise. Amen? And so I have this question for you. Am I a Christmas tree Christian? We're going to get to the point. Am I a Christmas tree Christian? But that's in your notes if you want to fill in the blank before we talk about what I mean in relation to these verses. Am I a Christmas tree Christian? Now, I love Christmas. If I wouldn't get completely crucified by people, my Christmas decorations would have been up six months ago. I probably wouldn't have even taken them down. You know what I mean? But in this context, it is not a good thing. So I want you to look at this doodle. 
and unpack it with me. So Christmas tree Christians. Now, you guys have to think real Christmas tree, not fake Christmas trees, okay? Like the ones that you plug, you know, you buy from Walmart. This is like the one you get from a farm, okay? They're decorated with Christian symbols. They have fake fruit on them, right? Some people decorate with fruit. It's not real fruit. It draws attention to itself. It's cut off from the roots. It requires weekly watering to delay death. And it's eventually thrown to the curb. Am I a Christmas tree Christian? Here's what I mean. With a Christmas tree, remove all the tinsel, all the lights, all the glass fruit. Christmas trees are corpses. They are dead. They are cut off from their roots. And that is not the essence of a thriving follower of the way of Jesus. I want to read this quote from What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jatani. He said this, too many Christians, maybe, sorry, I only had that line to help me. Too many Christians, I think it's after the next, there it is, perfect, nice job. Too many Christians, communities are filled with beautiful but dead Christmas trees. Yet what our Lord desires is the subtle beauty of a fruitful, thriving orchard. So Christmas tree communities are like, ah, look at us. We're doing this and this and this and this all in the name of Jesus while inside we are deader than a doornail. And I just think the way of Jesus is here we are. There's fruit, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Come, join the journey. And there's a huge difference. And I think the world has been used to the in your face, I'm a giant dead Christmas tree. And what the world craves is that humble but fruitful orchard ready to add more vines to the branch. So, what is this fruit that Jesus desires, right? He talks about how you can determine the tree by its fruit. Well, I think it's really simple. Character is greater than accomplishments. Character is greater than accomplishments. And boy, howdy, church, if this doesn't speak to your pastor today, I don't know what does. Character is greater than accomplishments. You know, the accomplishments are the things you can hang on the wall. It's the numbers. It's the, I mean, I just celebrated how many people were baptizing, which is really exciting. <laughs> but character is greater than accomplishments. You know, Paul really leans into this. 
and gives us a pretty direct idea of the fruit Jesus is likely referring to when he's talking about good fruit versus bad fruit. We've read this passage during this series, and we're going to read it again. This is Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So, you might say, a tree that is fueled by the Holy Spirit produces these things. You know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about some of these things. We've talked about anger. We've talked about love. We've talked about lust. We've talked about generosity, hypocrisy, honesty, anxiety, peace. And in all of these spaces, Jesus has been compelling us back to heart awareness that we might have hearts that are full of the Holy Spirit, naturally bearing the fruit because he has created in us good hearts. And so in, in our culture, we're conditioned to look for accomplishments. I love when, when pastors, when we report to the, don't think ill of anybody because of this, but when we report to the denomination at the end of each church year, we have to put on there how many people were saved and how many people were sanctified because of you this year. That's fun to quantify. I'm just going to put all of you, okay? But they know nothing about my character. Did I love well? Did I serve well? Was I faithful to my spouse? Am I a tither? Am I honest? But man, those accomplishments are really easy to quantify. The rest is a little harder and I just think, as I look at the heart of Jesus, he's more concerned that our accomplishments come from a heart formed by the character of Jesus. Maybe you find yourself here saying, okay, how? How do we ensure that that is who we're becoming? How do we ensure that that's what we're doing? I think it's really easy at this point because we're also kind of in a self-improvement culture. We want the book the process, the program that will use knowledge and willpower to fix us. That would be great, right? If we could just find the right program that could finally program us right. I don't think it's out there. And I think this is Jesus' point. Identity determines fruit. Identity determines fruit. Listen, does anybody tell an apple tree to make apples and not oranges. Do you tell it that when you plant it? Its identity is an apple tree, so it bears apples. No amount of knowledge or willpower or effort will change what a tree produces. It is inherent to the tree's identity, fruit just happens. Now, I, I just want us to think about that for a moment. 
This is all about heart posture. If our heart is deeply anchored to Jesus, fruit should just happen. I am not laboring at, did I love more? Was I kind today? Because it's out of the overflow of my heart that is anchored in Jesus. If we're working at it, because we're having to stir it up and like grit our teeth and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, then we're probably Christmas tree Christians. And so then Jesus compels it again, deal with your heart, let me deal with your heart, let me transform your heart, let me do the heavy lifting. I have another quote for you from What If Jesus Was Serious. It said, a good tree will naturally and automatically produce good fruit. That is how Jesus describes his disciples. We are like like healthy, thriving trees, and the life of God within us is manifested in the love, joy, peace, kindness, and mercy we produced. Going on, he says this, The key to this kind of life, Jesus said, is learning to abide deeply in communion with him, the way a branch abides in a vine or a tree that is rooted in good soil. Our focus should not be on the fruit on our branches, but the depth of our roots. As we live deeply with Jesus, the fruit will take care of itself. Man, I want to be that tree. I want to be the tree that just knows who it is, knows whose it is, and because of that deep-rootedness, bears the fruit of the Spirit. Amen? And so, here we are. Who am I? Who are you? Are we Christmas tree Christians? Or are we one whose identity is deeply rooted in the family of Jesus? And then we have to do this really difficult thing and ask how verses 21 to 23 apply to this whole conversation about fruit. 21 and 23. Will Christmas tree Christians be those who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you? I don't want to be there. it can be summarized this way church if we miss identity transforming communion with God we miss it all if we miss identity transforming communion with God we miss it all and that's why we gather week after week after week so that none of us has to do it alone None of us are in it alone. We have one another to help us in this journey as we aim for that identity-transforming communion with God. We're wrapping up now, verses 24 through 29. The last of the three pictures that, that Jesus gives. Now everybody sing, The wise man built his house upon left me hanging it's fine verse 24 anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock 
Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. Listen, church. But anyone who hears, did you hear that? Anyone who hears my teaching and, did you hear that? Two things. Anyone who hears, that's us, and doesn't obey, please, Lord, let it not be us, is like the person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come, the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. You see, when I sang that song as a kid, wise man built his house, I'm thinking wise man, Christians, not wise men, not Christians. But this is actually an analogy about Christians. It's saying this way, genuine. This way, not genuine. So let me show you this doodle. It talks about the foundation of our house. Ding! Good job. So what does the rock represent? Under that house, you've got sand and soil, and then you've got the, the rock foundation. Answer A, good Christian theology. Eh. B, the church. Eh. Jesus, really good Sunday school answer, but no. According to what Jesus just said, the solid foundation is obedience to Jesus' commands. It's not just knowing the right things, it's actually doing them. So if we take this classic Sunday school parable and we understand it in context of the whole Sermon on the Mount, and listen, church, this is his big conclusion. This is like Jesus is taking it home, the altar call is about to happen. Not really, but if he were here... But Jesus is saying something quite pointed. He's saying there's two types of Christians. Those who listen and obey, and those who listen and don't obey. Two types. One is genuine, and one is false. That strong foundation that Jesus calls the people of, he says, following the way of Jesus, the strong foundation is to listen and obey. And the hard thing, church, is the only difference might be seen beneath the surface. I watch a lot of HGTV, too much, honestly. You can have some really terrible foundation and the house looks pretty decent on top. But you know what there is? There's cracks up the siding. And unless you look close, you don't know. Or like the episode I watched last night, if you kept the cabinets shut, you wouldn't know that there was a tree growing through the ground. <laughs> Hear and obey. So the only difference might be seen beneath the surface, but Jesus is clear. Those who hear and obey are built on a solid foundation. Those who hear and do not obey are living on sand. I have one more analogy for you. Are you with me? Oh, good. Thank you so much. I have another doodle for you and another story because I think this is so important, church. If we don't get this, we've wasted our time for the last 10 weeks, okay? Okay. 
What is unseen defines everything. Look at this picture. Up top, everything's good. We got a tree blooming. We got a duck swimming. We got a house that looks like it's got its act together, and we've got a human. But what's underneath the surface, invisible to the human eye, is key. We've got the root system. We've got the little duck going, right? That's keeping it moving. We've got, in this portrayal, the people underneath the house, like the servants, making things happen. And you'll notice there it says the unseen patterns of obedience. Let me give an example. Do I have any Downton Abbey fans out there? Yes. Okay. Think about English life. High English life. Upstairs, you've got the prim proper people with all their high collars and their fancy outfits and their corsets and everything's together and nobody shows any emotion and it's but what is happening in the basement? The poor servants are scurrying around, doing all the things to make sure everything looks good upstairs. So what makes the people look good upstairs? What's happening downstairs? What is God's whole point? Worry about what's happening inside, and the outside will come together. What's invisible is what tells the story. The unseen is what makes us strong. The unseen is what makes us strong. I have another quote for you from the book, What If Jesus Was Serious?, it says this, recent studies say that increasing numbers of Christians, particularly young adults, are falling away from the faith. I wonder whether part of the problem is a form of pop Christianity that's more focused on building impressive houses rather than strong foundations. Life upstairs is easy and often fun. This is the life of exciting church events and activities. Life downstairs is much more difficult. This is the life of prayer, solitude, confession, and discipline. It's where the house is truly maintained. To persevere in Christian life, we must be willing to spend time in the servants' quarters and cellars to establish unseen and uncelebrated patterns of obedience. Throwing my cards out there again. Church, I, I could just really care less about our parties. Now, I'm excited to eat some chili next week. I will admit that. But I could care less. What I care about is that each of us, as we follow the way of Jesus, is figuring out these unseen pattern of obedience that shape and form us in the way of Jesus, that we might be the transformed bride of Christ, alive and well in our world. So, no, I'm not super interested in planning parties. I'm way more interested in planning things, creating spaces where together as the people of God, we encounter the living God and are transformed week after week after week. And so if that's what you want, this is your church. Because that's where I'm headed. And I hope you'll go with me. The 
unseen is what makes us strong. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and prepare to lead us into a time of reflection. We've been on this 10-week journey now through Jesus' most pivotal sermon in Scripture. And we've watched Jesus beautifully walk us through a description of what his way looks like, what the Father's kingdom looks like. And we come to this place to make a decision. And today, Jesus gave us three pictures of what it looks like to make that decision. And I'm reminded of another mountaintop teaching. You know, we call this the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus quite literally elevated himself so that the crowds could hear. There was another really important time when God's mouthpiece was on a mountain in a pivotal moment. It was Moses on Mount Sinai. And after encountering God on the mountaintop, Moses came down to where the people could see him and his face shone because he had encountered the living God and he presented the Ten Commandments to the people. And much like Jesus with his followers at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Moses called the people to obedience. Moses said, you've heard. Here are the Ten Commandments from our Lord. What will you do? And Jesus, he's laid out this beautiful sermon for us, and he says, okay, you've heard. Come, follow me. This is what it looks like. Are you in? And I love the response of the people to Moses. If you look in Scripture, after the people hear from Moses, the Ten Commandments, in response, they say this. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Whew. Now we know they struggled. It was an up and down journey. But praise the good Lord. Grace. But they said it. Everything the Lord said, we will do. And I can't help but think, church, imagine how our world would be different if those who claimed to follow Jesus actually did. And so today, can we stand in this space and say everything King Jesus has said, we will do with God's grace covering us, his spirit fueling us, everything King Jesus has said, we will do. The way of Jesus is messy, but it's so worth it. I invite you to stand as we go into a time of reflection And I just hope you might join me in making that your declaration.
everything that King Jesus has said, I will do. And I will do it together with the people of God. Oh God, hear us. Everything you have said, we will do. But we're going to need your help, God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the voice of the Lord in our ears. We need the church. We need the transforming power of being together with one another and the Spirit at work inside of us illuminating your way. And I'm reminded yet again of what Paul said in Philippians 2.13, that God is working in you, giving you the power and the desire to do what pleases God. And so, Lord, we just lean into that promise today that as we declare everything you've said we will do, we lean on the power of your spirit to even make that possible. And we journey together covered by your grace. God, as the worship team leads us, would you quiet all the distractions today and just let us focus in on the work that you want to do in us. Would you transform our hearts, oh God? Have your way. It's in the mighty name of Jesus I pray.